Welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. Today we are joined by Karen Roth, who we had the privilege to speak with before starting her new position as the Deputy Director of AFWORKS on the topics of software engineering, partnering through our Innovari Advancement Center, and the ongoing battle between World of Warcraft's biggest factions. In three, two, one. Karen Roth, welcome to the podcast. It's nice to be on. Thank you so much, Ken. Yeah, really happy to have you here. Uh, for context, Karen Roth is the chief engineer of our information directorate, but we're not talking about that just yet. There's something I found out about you I have to go into. I have to squash some beef between us. So I not to say it's big beef, but it's still there. Found out we did both play the game World of Warcraft. We have different alliances here. So tell me real quick here. Uh, I'm a Horde player. Who did you side with when you started playing? So, I, I mean, I got to admit it, but I was Alliance. It was where all of the cool kids were at the time, also known as my college buddies, and I just couldn't turn my back on them. So I was a Night Elf Hunter. Okay, good show. You know what? That's the answer I was looking for. The reason I picked Horde is my, my buddies at the time, they were like, you got to play Horde. The cool kids are there. You're going to be a troll shaman. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> so I don't think we ever faced each other in the battlefield, but I feel you probably would have beat me. I was not a good player. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love to connect up, collect up all the cool hunter gear and the dungeons. So uh, I would have taken you on. You know, and again, maybe at some point in the future, who's to say what could happen? Uh, but I do have to know then. So I, again, I thought maybe we'd have more of a fight here, but it looks like we're in agreement. So we both know it's the friends that pull you somewhere. I'm just curious too, when it comes to playing like, you know, massive multiplayer like RPGs online, what was the lure of that for you? Like what originally drew you in and was there anything you took away from it? Because I always find playing games like that, the connection to community is what I love, like really making friendships that have lasted. So was that similar for your experience? Uh, yeah, that really was a lot of why I was doing it because I started playing WoW toward the end of college. And so then that was the connection back as you started this whole new life in this new place that I'd never lived before. I was able to still utilize that as a way to connect with my college friends and, and bring that along with me. And there's certainly some of them. I, I do have to admit, I don't play WoW anymore, but helping to maintain those friendships and connections over the years, that was a big help with it. Lance Bazroth helped in a big way in that regard. But I want to start with that. That's a really cool wow factor, you could say, um, with the podcast here at the top. Uh, but I'm going to go over to my co-host here, Michelle, for the next section. Oh, yeah, definitely. Uh, I'm not going to have any commentary on wow i didn't personally play but not a surprise to probably our regular listeners either but but karen you you're, you sit at our information directorate which is in upstate new york and in, in the rome new york area and i imagine there's probably a lot of gamers around you some amazing experts in, in their field but what do you do as the chief engineer at our information directorate so michelle like i really do a little bit of everything and so that's the great part about the information directorate is not only do we do innovative new computing structures we work on forward-reaching communications techniques we work on decision making um, and so it's been really great because we get to keep track of all these different enabling capabilities not only for the air force but for the rest of our directorates as well in my role specifically, I do everything from supporting tasks, security functions, instructions on kind of that more compliance systems engineering side of the realm for our portfolio. But the great part of being a senior leader in our directorate is I also get to play being a community liaison, building partnerships, open innovation is uh, one of my other duties as a sign that I get to work on. 
I work with our compatriots in RS on the WarTech process and making sure our capabilities are all part of those really forward leaning Vanguard capabilities for the future of the Air Force. And so it's just a little bit of everything. And that's really why I love doing this job. Well, let's dive a bit deeper in there, though. So you mentioned a lot of the cool connections you could make here and the people you talk to. Can we kind of go into how the information directorate specifically is leveraging partnerships? I know that can be a difficult task to create strong connections within a community anywhere in the world. What are you guys doing that makes it a little different or at least easier for your job? Partnerships are such an important part of everything that we do here in the information directorate. When I talked about the breadth of our mission space, there is so much going on, not only in those spaces and in industry, academia, other government organizations. And so we have to be laser focused, not only on relationships and partnering to help other organizations go faster, but making sure that we're really in the weeds and moving technology forward that's really going to be future enabling capabilities. And so we do work like partnering with IBM and making sure that future tech and chipsets have the capabilities that we need built into them. We do things like partnering with other government organizations like the National Security Innovation Network. And so we almost act as tech advisors for their accelerators that they invest in and run for our future technical capabilities. And so part of that is we saw so many opportunities out there for partnering, but how do we keep track of all of them and make sure that each person is enabling each other? A lot of times we are saying this company and we talk to this agency, you know, how do we connect them directly versus through us? And we were doing a lot of manual connections like that. So we really leaned in probably about seven, eight years ago and said, what does open innovation really mean to us? How do we bring all of these layers that we see that are such a critical part of our mission together in one space so that we, we can start to work together more collaboratively. And so the concept of Innovare was born of that. How do we each put all of our chips on the table with the things that we're best at doing and saying, all right, how can we take advantage of this? Because I think one of the big things for us is you know, our intellectual portfolio that we develop as part of our research portfolio is our big thing. But we also recognize that things like housing and community services and all of that was important to our workforce and to bringing in future workforce. So how do we make sure that we sit down not only with our technical partners, but the, our city partners, our state partners that all have different views on what innovation looks like and how we can build up this community and this technology areas uh, for something better. And so we've been able to do a lot of that under that NFRA umbrella and leaning in and working with the various economic development agencies and making sure that they were empowered to talk on our behalf about all the great stuff that we have here to help us find partners as well, which is it's it's just such a great alliance that we have working together. And it's such a great learning experience, learning about all these other different community functions and how we all pull together to be this technical community that we're building here in Rome, New York. I have to know, I, I kind of want to dive in more to how Innovare works, but can you share where the name came from? I know innovation's part of it, but why Innovare? The Latin root of Innovare is innovation. Um, and so we wanted to reach into not only some of those innovation roots, but also the heritage and the Italian heritage that we have here, as well as all of the other 
large amount of immigration and kind of using that Latin root on how everyone was coming together under under that innovation heading. And so that's really fun. And if you look up Innovari and you look at the Rorschach on it, um, I would love to hear, Ken, uh, what you think of that and what you see in it. Because we love to ask all of our new partners what they see that. And sometimes the heart comes out first. Sometimes people see the B-52. Someone told us a moth once. And so we were able to like, all right, the, the moth is going toward the light that is in Avari. We like that one. Some people saw like little quantum ions that were moving through it. So it was really based on your relationship with Innovari on what you saw in that Rorschach. And so that's always been a little fun, fun test that we've asked everyone to do. So I'm looking at it and um, this is so I, I can make sure that in the show notes, at least on the website, we will have people have access to this. It's a very cool moving graphic. Um, I have not looked at this yet, so it's probably a bit guided by what you said. I definitely saw the heart first, but what came to mind after was seeing this actual piece moving around this dot that's kind of tracing the lines. Maybe think of an electron, this kind of circling around it almost, which is super cool. So I mean, not only innovation, but you kind of are able to pull out, like you said, what you want from this. Like you are able to have this as an activation center for your, whatever it's going to be for partnerships. There is so much to find here, but you don't really know it's possible until you know it exists. So seeing this is a cool way of showing there's so much inside Innovari that we can help unlock. So I really like that. So the idea behind that kind of was that to have a Rorschach test to see what each person could draw a different conclusion from. Was that the idea behind it? Uh, yeah. And I think it turned out even better than we imagined because it really connects people from the being able to see it in different ways and understanding other different people's point of views. To me, the first thing I always see is the heart in it though. Um, the heart of the community, the passion of our technical folks here in the information directorate and the passion in our community partners from the, the city and our partnership intermediary on everything of how that they just want to come together and do the right thing for the Air Force. It's always the conversation about how can we propel the Air Force forward? It isn't about this or that or the other thing. It really is acting as a team. And I think the heart behind that is amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. So that's super cool. Michelle, I'm curious, do you get a chance to look at it yourself? I mean, if not, we can always circle back later on. Oh, I, I took a look at it. You, you can see a lot of pictures there. It's kind of like the blot test a little bit. You know, uh, what, <laughs> what does everyone see? And what's the psychology behind that? But Karen, you've explained this open innovation campus, but for our listeners, they may not know what's really part of this campus that's a collaboration between AFRL and Griffiths Institute and all these high-tech industrial and academic stakeholders, but you actually have like lab space there. Quantum research is a big thing for our scientists and engineers um, at, at the, in the information directorate, as well as other parts of AFRL across the country. Could you kind of explain what the campus is like? Of course. And I, I feel like I want to take you back a couple steps too, a little bit more to what we were thinking and why we went down this open innovation route. When we started talking open innovation, we looked around a lot and did a lot of benchmarking on what other folks were doing and buildings and facilities and things like that. But we really looked in our heart and said, why do we want to do open innovation to start with? Um, no matter what the building is or the facilities or anything like that, but why do we want to do open innovation? And when we started going down that route and started looking outside the bounds of physical space, it was about how do we connect people together? And so when we started talking about that and started, we made the goals around Innovare all about new diverse community members, 
new entrepreneurial ventures and community intellectual leadership. So everything from our STEM leadership and everything that we're doing to inspire our future workforce through how do we inspire new business opportunities and the spaces that we're interested in, but in general, just finding new cool people to talk about and inspire our folks and inspire um, other business leaders in the area and across the world, like global is written all over the strategy for Innovare. So once we started thinking in that more broad vision of bringing people together, we saw and started looking at what are the gaps in order to do that. And that's where the gaps in, well, we don't have great facilities that we can partner with our foreign allies and we don't have great community space here locally. So understanding that is a global need that we could go other locations, but our home is here as well. So how do we build up the capability space here? How do we build up the space and capabilities for these entrepreneur venturers that we see coming down the pipeline and we want to inspire? Well, then they need a place to go grow and visit and, and be here as well. And so as all of that starting to come together, the, the Griffith Institute really did see a need for a different space than the space that they were sitting in right now that was more open, that inspired innovation, but more importantly, had hard laboratory space to do some of that foreign interaction, more academic, more fundamental research that was not military directed inside of a military facility. And so that's where a lot of the inspiration came from for the hard laboratory space as well. There's two giant, beautiful quantum laboratories that we hope to use to fulfill some of our hopes and dreams of connecting New York State uh, quantum research we have two big, beautiful communications laboratories and computing laboratories. We focus on things like terahertz computing and those things that we're looking at for future Air Force needs. And it's connected also to a giant indoor-outdoor UAS test facility that we're going to be able to utilize. And the great part of it is, is the county actually invested in this facility and Griffiths Institute is renting it. And so that was really the county and the city's vision of how to contribute and accelerate economic development and innovation in the area. You've got the great ideas and you wrote down like the broadness of everything that you want to achieve here, we're going to give you a tool in order to do this. And you being not just the Air Force, clearly, because we access that facility with our relationship with the Griffiths Institute, but it was their commitment to the community in general. When I say you, all right, we see this is where all of the new businesses are going to go. We see that this is where this research innovation is going to happen. We understand your vision, and this is how we're investing in this to make this happen. And so that's just so exciting to see that local investment and commitment to the development of the area and what's going to be happening here. And so that's a huge part in it. We already had a really large portfolio of partnerships through cooperative research and development agreements, through educational partnership agreements, but being able to accelerate those opportunities and move forward is, is super great. We drew our major partners in this ecosystem development, not only from government, like the National Security Innovation Network that I mentioned, and also the city of Rome, the county of Oneida here in upstate New York, but our academic partners. So the SUNY came to the table as a whole. Uh, SUNY is made up of over 50 different colleges and universities throughout New York State. 
And so at the at the SUNY level, they came to the table as a way to make sure that we were able to access all of those universities, all those capabilities. They were mentioned and they were able to pull all that together. MIT comes to the table through the MIT AI Accelerator that they run in collaboration with the Air Force. Cornell comes to the table with the AFRL Regional Hubs. RIT came to the table for as one of the first private university name partners in Innovare. And so it's just so interesting to hear everyone's interest in Innovare. Like our AFRL interest in making it happen is how do we generate excitement over our IP portfolio and making sure that through tech transfer, people have access to that IP portfolio as well to help them move faster. RIT came to the table because they want to understand what their future graduate work and curriculum should look like in order to meet this community's future needs. And so they're digging down and using this opportunity to really make sure that the future is there from a workforce development perspective. And so that's where like the passion and the excitement comes from of orienting all these partners together. And then of course our partnership intermediaries come out too. Those are nonprofit organizations that help us do work in tech transfer like the Griffiths Institute and Nice Tech. And those two communities uh, have different focuses and desires, but have been able to work really well together and collaborate well in this vision coming together. And this really shows how vital the communities that AFRL exist in around the world, around the United States, we're, we're better together and we need that collaboration with our, with our partners in the community and the universities and things like that for collaboration, that tech transfer, you know, the good ideas that are developed, maybe like inside the fence, as we would say, but we need industry to develop them to, to make these ideas and, and products and, and equipment available for our warfighters. And then just even the a, attraction and, and retention of our employees, they have to live somewhere if they're if they're a in-person worker, you know, hands-on in these lab spaces, they have to have a community that supports them as humans outside mm-hmm. of their day-to-day jobs. We all like being able to go home and, and have something, an amazing community to come home to. And I love having other AFRL folks from other directorates visit us because they look around at how the technology park that we sit on has evolved since it was the Griffiths Air Force Base almost 30 years ago. And there's so much green space and there's beautiful walking trails and sculptures, and it does not look like an Air Force Base. And so it blows them away that we've been able to create something over the past, not only with open innovation, but in general, the past 30 years that looks very different, but still has such an amazing service to the Air Force too. So it used to be Griffiths Air Force Base and and an Air Force Base has a lot more infrastructure and certain missions to it, but Rome is like an installation. So it's kind of a, a smaller footprint from like services and things like that. Would that be a good explanation? Yeah, that's a very good explanation. We are officially designated an installation and we also service the Defense Finance and Accounting Service that also sits on the installation property. But we've got two ma- three major buildings as part of that and DFAS has another building or two part of it. And so we would be, to someone that's used to a traditional Air Force base, it's a very small footprint. Whenever Griffiths Air Force Base um, went through the base realignment process, in the mid 90s it was decided that the footprint of the research laboratory 
as well as the accounting services and then up the hill from us is the eastern air defense sector would be left here in order to help stabilize the area and not only that but the laboratory had amazing resources in terms of test sites that we had built because we actually own two test sites about 30 miles in either direction that we utilize for our mission still to this day and they wanted to maintain this and so we've been able to recreate the whole tech park that used to be the base property and I mean, I'm saying we, but I really give credit to the Economic Development Agency here in the area that took ownership of the, a lot of the property for creating a really diverse environment. There's distribution facilities in the back for companies. There's UAV companies that have moved into the old hangars and the massive B-52 hangars because uh, the heritage of Griffiths Air Force Base was a B-52 Cold War base an old strategic air command. And so Inovare, oh, I missed this great detail. Inovare is actually in the old base operations center. And so the old base operations center had been left. It wasn't unused. Um, they were using it as a part of it, part of the operations, but two of the floors were completely empty and abandoned. And they really wanted to bring life back to this. And that's why the facility was picked. The county picked that facility because they wanted to renovate it and make it the heart of this new technical community. And so the the middle part of it, and it's attached to two big hangars on either side of it. One of those hosts the UAS test center, and the other one is currently doing some other aircraft operations. But like that's that's one of the the key parts is the renovation of these old base buildings that are still so much a part of what we do every day. Um, some more of the B fifty two hangars are being used for aircraft restoration right now. We actually still own an aircraft hangar as well as part of the AFRL property, where uh, we do all of our. We have a fabrication shop in there, so that makes for great prototyping and all that. I, I just love that that history is still here on the property of everything and the mission of that strategic air command base. What a great trek back into the history of Innovare and AFRL's roots and history of, of, the, of the Air Force and in your region. So stepping back, maybe we could trek back a little bit into your history too, Karen. I wonder what initially got you involved in STEM or interested in? You know, you, you look back in time and you think about things and, you know, I was one of those kids that never had a clear vision on what they wanted to be to grow up with. One of my friend's kids knows at nine years old knows exactly what she wants to do and has known that for several years. I just know that I like trying to solve problems and I like figuring out how things worked. I wasn't one of those kids that like stole clocks and took them apart, but I did enjoy, you know, I had an old 8088 computer and I enjoyed being able to see the change and see the outcome that computer programming and basic in that day and age so maybe i'm dating myself but seeing being able to see the impact and see real live changes and what was happening and how when i created something it appeared in front of me like magic and i just thought that that was really cool and i i can see that spark now looking back in time and my daughters today and just their spark and curiosity for understanding how everything works i'm like oh, you're going to be tiny engineers too. My husband keeps telling me that they can be anything that they want to be, but based on the fact that the three-year-old has been assembling a PVC pipe and trying to solve our plumbing problems, even he admits that he thinks she has a career in engineering. And so it's it it's really is that spark for problem solving that can come through in any career space, the way you apply it. And I'm just really grateful it came out and I was able to find it in the engineering world and being able to land where I am today with the Air Force and having this great role to perform for our mission. 
that's one of the things that, I mean, growing up that really inspired me was I had my old Windows Gateway computer uh, back when I had that cow logo. Uh, and that was similar to you. Something that was really inspiring was seeing, like, uh, not only being able to see these games my dad would buy, play out, being able to use, like, MS Paint, things to create on this digital space. I'm like, there's so much in this box that interests me. <laughs> I'm fascinated by it. Um, and, and that's why, I mean, I've always had a passion for attempting to engineer, maybe even doing software engineering. Never quite my forte, but I gave it my best try after playing there in 98. So I'm curious then, uh, having this IBM in your home, like you mentioned, this PC, uh, was this one of the early sparks that really got you into doing what you do now with software engineering or at least similar work? Or is this more of other things? Because I know you had a junior academy of science tie. Like what really built up to making you want to do software engineering? I think that PC gave me this spark of inspiration that this was something that I could do. Like I did physics and chemistry and all those kinds of great stuff in high school. And I was good at it, but I really hadn't figured out what it was that I wanted to actually try to pursue once I got to college. And so it gave me, it was almost kind of this little secret world because I was going to these, I'm originally from Pennsylvania. So um, the Pennsylvania Junior Academy of Science, I was going to these competitions and they had a computer science category even then. So I was taking my little basic programs that I was designing in school and at home and entering them in the competition. And it almost felt like cheating because there wasn't that many people in that area yet. And so you'd see the the physics area that was overrun with all the different experiments. And then the computer science area I was competing against like 20 kids in the region in order to do these things. Um, a lot of them from my own school. So we knew exactly what each other each other was doing. And so it felt a little bit like cheating that I had found like this wondrous new world that like I was starting to understand and hadn't really caught on mainstream yet um, and wasn't really part of everyone's world yet. And so I thought that that was amazing from that perspective and having that computer at home gave me that confidence that it was something that I thought I could be good at too um, by having that area to practice and explore and see the results of my actions when I created a new logic program. Back in those days, you could send secret emails if you knew the right code and stuff like that. So you could tease your friends and family and all that and get them get them freaked out by where's this email coming from? Why is president at us.org or whatever sending me an email? Um, and so we loved having just that little secret world in order to play in. And I loved having uh, things like the Pennsylvania Junior Academy of Science to showcase that I was learning and I was good at this to have that confidence in order to go into the realm of of engineering and computer science. Sure. And it sounds like early on there, especially in your region, uh, for your age group, more of a pioneer too. There wasn't many kids in the space, like you mentioned, getting to really see what your interests lied in there and having secret emails and being able to do some of your own coding. It's really cool to have this almost freedom to do what you want online. That said, though, I'm curious with all the, since you said there's only about 20 kids in these competitions or at least connected to these Junior Academy of Science meetings, did you find it was almost easier to learn this space because you kind of had this tighter knit community and you weren't kind of drowned out of the noise, kind of like with the more physics groups or people that have dozens of kids? I think for me and my perspective, it did help because physics is well-established realm. There's still a lot to explore in physics, but in order to, to really shine in those areas, it's much more difficult. And so I got to be in an area that was good for me because I got to come out of my shell a little bit I was shy. There's still plenty of people telling women in this in that day and age and certainly today that 
science isn't going to be their thing and, oh, this isn't the area you should be in, that kind of thing. And so being able to do that in a more safe environment that was smaller without a lot of com competition was a really great learning education for me to be able to, to, to come out and say, hey, my little program, this is something, this is amazing, versus put it to the side and saying, oh, I can't compete with those crowds. And so that was impactful from that perspective for me and who I was, and I appreciated those opportunities. Absolutely empowering in a very big way, especially again with that group that's so supportive and so cool that you can really dictate someone's like, hey, what is this space? What is software engineering? You're like, well, let me show you. But I have so far at least, I'm figuring this out, um, which, that said, some of our listeners may not be familiar with what software engineers are. So can you talk about what a software engineer is and what they do? Sure. So a software engineer for me is really a cross between computer science and systems engineer. And so it's how do you take all of those engineering principles that you learn and then apply them in that software realm. And that's so important for us as the Air Force because we're trying to design large systems that have global impact with the mission that we have for the Air Force. And so not only do you have to be able to program cool algorithms, you have to be able to think through everything from environmental impact to, to testing, to operations. I have a really great example. I worked on a helicopter system at one point in time. And so the solution kept being, well, let's put another all right, well, we need this special avionics box to do this, and we need this special avionics box to do this, and we need this special box to do this. Well, at some point in time, that becomes a thermal issue for the helicopter. And you have to be able to keep that helicopter cooled enough in order for it to continue flying. So at the very base mission, it needs to be able to fly and move forward. And so you have to be able to balance out even considerations like, thermal impact to the work that you were doing and the computing power that it takes to design systems in certain areas and bring all of that together systematically to come to what the correct solution is. It's so easy to say, all right, I know how to code this answer and code it up and be done, not realizing the impacts of what you were trying to do. There was someone that on that same project that wanted to move a set of code from one avionics box to another avionics box and then eliminate the original avionics box. And I remember having this panic moment running down the hallway of going, no, don't take my box. That's an accredited box. You know, it's a very different scenario of like this just dumb little piece of code, but having it housed in a specifically accredited box um, was what prevented uh, a two-year time gap on the end of being able to deliver that aircraft. And so all of those different interactions and, and considerations to make is really why I love software and systems engineering. It's like putting together the puzzle of life whenever you're pulling all those leaves together. And it's just an amazing feeling when you feel like you've gotten your hands around all of the impacts on everything that it takes to come into play to design a system like we do for the Air Force. I'm just saying, I think that's pretty much the tagline for the podcast, putting together the puzzle of life. That's brilliant. <laughs> Something that you really hit on there that I was going to ask you about, but you really illustrated with that description um, was I, I mentioned earlier, I, I did some basic computer programming in high school, nothing crazy, uh, but I got to work with some CS plus or CS, excuse me, plus, plus, plus. Yes. Either way, um, C++, there it is. So I got there. See, it's been so long, but working <laughs> C++, even with simple coding, what I was learning, I 
if I had an asterisk, uh, a specific item or something out of line, that could ruin an entire string of code. It was so micro that I had to scrub everything, go through hundreds of lines to make sure everything was operational. And it's amazing how much could just be canceled out if it's not done right. So when working with the right teams and in, in your experience, um, there's always that phrase of, you know, one pebble can start an entire avalanche. That could be one piece of code that goes a little awry. Have you found that your approach to coding early on, looking at this micro scale, has that kind of helped you nowadays, like really being more detail oriented? Or is that coding experience helped in any other ways? That's a good question. Um, I think it has. Programming languages are all about understanding the logic and how they think. And there's so many different languages out there today because none, no one of them, we have a phrase in software engineering, there is no silver bullet. And so there's never any one big answer that's going to solve every one of our problems. All the different languages are different tools that have different optimization algorithms and different compilers, all things behind them that are designed for the right reasons in the right place. And so I think that being able to dive into different languages and learn them really helped shape my more systems engineering view of understanding the impacts of your decisions and those little nuances. And so by being able to understand those impacts, it makes it easier, the more experience and the older I get to build that puzzle faster. And that's that's so important. And it's it's a big part of understanding that when you're an engineer that the, the impacts of that thing that you're trying to build. And so I like to relate it to architecture a lot. You know, you wouldn't go just start throwing bricks on a pile and starting to build a building without designing it first and making sure the plumbing is in all of the right places and making sure that you have electrical that's going to go and actually fulfill the need of the building. So when you start building up those layers and you look at CAD designs of buildings, you really look at it as layers and software is the same way. And to design a successful building, you have to understand what plumbing strategy is going to look different from another one to really fulfill. Otherwise, you end up with plumbing situations like in my house where there wasn't enough gravity coming down from the second floor and we continuously get clogged because someone tried to put like three different pipes all going into one location that it, it couldn't overcome each other and the gravity wasn't there to continue down. So we, we continuously have to deal with that. And so it, it's examples like that where they didn't think through the impacts of, yeah, they had the right angle and the physics correct for two pipes and didn't think that adding a third pipe was going to make a big difference. So I think it's those little differences and we go through an ethics, you know, one of the common cases of ethics conversations in software engineering is there was a big failure, oh, decades ago, I'm sure at this point in time of where someone used metric and someone used imperial and no one realized that. And so those little nuances and difference also go to why communication is so important in engineering. Otherwise, you've got a you've got a robot that's dead in the water and you've wasted millions of dollars on because it's not doing what you needed to do because there was different measurements being used and no one caught that until it had actually been deployed. Absolutely. And that's a really great way of illustrating that because that's one thing I found with coding, like at the top of the question there, is there's a lot of micro details you get into, but one of those micro things you need to know is like you put it, the tool for the job. Like you could have all the institutional knowledge you need to understand something in principle, but if you don't know to use the right hammer, the right saw, the right programming language, you may not be able to achieve that. So that's mm -hmm. a really, really cool part of software engineering is you have that toolkit and you're like, okay, 
Python today. That'll get this part of this done. We'll go to C++ next, so on. And that's something mm -hmm. as an early end software engineer, when I tried to do stuff, I didn't understand. I thought it had to be one language for one job. Uh, and if you mix it up too much or put too many things in one place, it would muddy the waters. That's not the case. That's so cool to know that kind of the breadth of what you guys can work in. Uh, and so now, like talking about all this background, what you've been doing, programming languages, um, you have this vast background of really cool comp computational knowledge and engineering knowledge. How did this then connect to AFRL? So I always tell people that uh, life is so interesting and in all of the interactions that you have. Um, I'm very involved in the Society of Women Engineers, and I know that we have another question on that next. But I was at a sweet conference in college, and I wandered up to an AFRL booth. I still didn't quite know what I wanted to do after college. I'm so envious of those people that know exactly what they want to do after college. And I said, I, I had this idea in my head that, that a government-like organization or contractor would make a lot of sense for a software engineer because they typically would be designing larger software systems. And that's where I could really start to stretch and learn more on the engineering side of the house. So I, I was going to random different booths. There was an AFRL booth there. I went and talked to someone. The person I wa walked up to was from Rome, New York. I had never heard of Rome, New York at the time. I had nodded a little bit. They invited me out for an interview. Still didn't quite know everything that was going on even after some research. But the thing that blew me away was the passion of the people that I interviewed with here was so different than all the other interviews that I had gone through. Like, you know, and, and I get it. When you're trying to interview new hires just out of college, there's so many of them. You're trying to get through them. You're trying to find whatever nuggets that are going to be important. But the people that I talked to here were so passionate. They were so excited. They were able to relate to me on how my background um, in software engineering was going to impact their mission. I said, all right, let's give this a try. And now many years later, it's all different. And it, it's just those little interactions. You know, if I hadn't thought on that, you know, 30 second pass through, hey, I'll go talk to that. And if I hadn't just randomly walked up to the one person I did, I wouldn't be here with this great organization with these phenomenal people here today. Um, and so I appreciate the, the life's little interactions and changes and what makes and uh, how they come to be. And to go full circle with that moment of a junior Karen going to the SWE conference and walking up to an AFRL booth, we know that you've recently been elected as the president of the Society of Women Engineers yourself. I have, and thank you so much for calling that out. As of July 1st, um, I am back on the board of directors for SWE as the president-elect, and I am just so grateful for the ability to serve this organization that was has been so meaningful to me for over 20 years. Not only did it help me find this first job in the life I have, but has been an amazing connection to women all over the world that are engineers and scientists and moms and explorers. And so this is kind of my love letter to give back to them, to help lead them into the next stage of the organization, help to grow more globally and represent my history and heritage as a software engineer as well in all of it. And I hope that the Air Force will be able to look at the role and help find new opportunities to celebrate women in engineering and be able to use this role I'm in now too. 
Yeah, well, congratulations, and I'm sure you'll you'll be heavily recruiting the next generation of AFRLers that support our airmen and guardians. That's definitely the goal. Yeah, and before we hit the power button on this episode, we always love to ask, do you have any advice for the, that next generation, whether they're software engineers or other um, people in STEM, to go on a path that you've been on? I think my advice to people is try everything. And I know that maybe sounds like overwhelming advice of try this, try that, try something else. But for me, that really was the key to finding myself, finding my place in engineering, finding my place in SWE, was trying different organizations, finding where the community was that I needed to succeed and finding out what it was that I wanted to be. When I went to college, even though I started as a software engineer, I still had a vision for myself that I would be a computer programmer. I barely touched any code since I've left college. It's all about the architecture and design of software systems that I focused on. And I let other people that are more talented than I am in actual code development take over that role after I work on the design piece of it but I wouldn't have gotten to that realm of that, that engineering design is really where I shine. If I hadn't done internships, if I hadn't done co-ops, if I hadn't talked to people, if I hadn't used my SWE network to talk to different people in all different fields and understanding what they did on a day-to-day basis and trying to understand where my talents really lied. And so I'm always amazed that even still to this day that I start to talk to someone new and I dig in at what they do and why they love their job about new opportunities and new spaces and uh, things that you don't realize happen and deep dive in. My friend was um, talking recently about how she's using UAVs and her construction company um, to help do power line assessments and evaluations so that way that they can reduce risk and overhead for their folks that normally would be doing that. And it, it's little things like that that are just so exciting to learn about um, engineering application in space. Well, in the spirit of being willing to try new things, do you think you'd ever be willing to join uh, Ken over on the Horde side? I don't know. That might be a line too far, Michelle. There's always a chance. Just saying that Horde is wide open. They're actually just opening with WoW. This is true. You can now do cross raids with Alliance and Horde. So even if you don't, maybe we could still play. Okay, well, in the spirit of partnership and learning new opportunities, (laughs) I will take you up on that, Ken. All right, my troll shaman will be ready. But until then, thank you so much, Karen, for joining us today. It's been such a pleasure talking to you and getting to learn more about you. And thank you to both you and Michelle as well. It's it's always great to um, have an opportunity to talk excitedly about what we're doing here in Rome and the future of our workforce. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.